Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Novel Dialogue, a podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies and produced in partnership with Public Books, an online magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship. On this podcast, we bring scholars and novelists together to talk about how novels work, how they're written, read, studied, and remembered. I'm Chris Holmes, the co-lead host for Season 5 of Novel Dialogue. Today I'll be speaking with International Booker Prize shortlister Mariana Enriquez, along with Professor of Comparative Literature Magali Armiestisiera. Mariana Enriquez is an award-winning Argentine novelist and journalist based in Buenos Aires, whose work has been translated into more than 20 languages. She is the author of Things We Lost in the Fire and The Dangers of Smoking in Bed, which was shortlisted for the 2021 International Booker Prize, the Kirkus Prize, the Ray Bradbury Prize for Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Speculative Fiction, and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in Fiction. The subject of our conversation today is her most recent novel, Our Share of Night. This is her fourth novel and the first translated into English. It was awarded the Heralde Novel Prize in 2019, one of the major literary prizes of the Spanish-speaking world. Our Share of Night follows a spiritual medium, Juan, who can commune with the dead and with the world of demons, and his son, Caspar, as they go on a road trip to outrun a secretive occult society called the Order that hopes to use Juan and Gaspar in their unholy quest for immortality. Publishers Weekly called Our Share of Night a masterpiece of literary horror. And like so much of Mariana's work, it refuses the hard borders of genre in favor of fiction that claws at the still open wounds of Argentina's past. Mariana's writing thrills with its bewitching combination of visceral body horror and probing political, historical, and ethical questions. In conversation today with Mariana is Magali Armias Tisiera. Magali is an associate professor in the Department of Comparative Literature at the Pennsylvania State University. She specializes in Latin American and African literatures, with a particular focus on large-scale comparative frameworks, such as the Global South. Her first book, The Dictator Novel, Writers and Politics in the Global South, was published by Northwestern University Press in 2019, and her work has appeared in a variety of academic venues and edited collections. This happens to be our second chance of talking with Mariana after a first recording had a terrible flaw in the ultimate recorded product. And we are so pleased that Mariana has agreed to come back and talk with us again after that marvelous first interview. Welcome to you both, Mariana and Magali. Thank you. Chris. Hi. Hi. Well, I'm going to start us off uh, with a reference to our last conversation, um, which is that in our last interview, I this wonderful interview that now exists in the ether, um, yeah. I started by asking about the scope of our share of night. It's both a long novel, it's longer than your previous three novels combined, but it's also a big novel in terms of its imaginative range, um, with the narrative moving across time and space and across the perspective of several characters who often return in subsequent sections. And in my first question, I described this bigness and density of the novel as a kind of maximalism. But in your answer, you said two things that surprised me. First, you described the logic of the novel as arboreal. And second, you talked about Our Share of Night as having its starting point in the biography you wrote of the Argentine writer Selina Ocampo, uh, Hermana Menor, or The Younger Sister, published in 2014. So I'd like to start by asking you to talk more about those two aspects of Our Share of Night. First, that arboreal bigness of the novel, and second, its relationship to that project of the biography in Hermana Menor. Okay, of course. Well, thank you for you two for having me again and wanted to do it, to, to do it again. Why? Arboreal? Because um, the novel 
follows the branches that start to grow in the narrative, to use a metaphor, and I follow them until, you know, I, and, you know, I, I follow them and, until they, uh, to me, they, 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 they grew enough. And this has, for some readers, the problem that they feel that it's a bit mindering, you know, or that you have a lot of information there that is not necessary to the plot. And maybe it's not, it's true. But I don't, um, I don't feel like I have to do a novel like this, with this length, with this kind of ambition, if you will, with such a tight plot. I, I, I really don't believe in that. I, I, I really do. Well, it depends the novel you want to do, but in this kind of novel, I, I really don't believe that it benefits from that. It can benefit for a quicker reading or something, but not the text itself. The text itself has to be a world, has to be a universe. In a world, there's a lot of useless stuff mm-hmm. and a lot of stuff that is useful afterwards because as I was reading the novel, I had to understand the world I, as I was writing it because it's very, even the, the, the realistic parts are not contemporary to me. I didn't do a lot of investigation. I really had to follow it in a, in an imaginative way. And I really had to let the characters talk because I need you to know that these are people that these are believable people they do magic stuff and there's real demons and they commute with real demons this is not a metaphor of you know everything is a metaphor in in a way but they're not metaphorical demons they're demons Mm -hmm. so if i don't make the character a believable real with a lot of you know of the realness of the things that happen that it takes a while and he you know doesn't make a cup of coffee good and then and then he starts to read in some poetry and then he starts to walk around and then you know he kind of goes to a room and brings the demon to talk to him um it's for me it was too abrupt i didn't want that kind of feel to the novel as I'm recalling Lermana Menor, I'm going to use a strong word. Feel free yeah. to adjust the word, but it, the biography of Silvino Campo herself doesn't have this um, level of contempt in it, no. right? No. It has a kind of seriousness for its biographical subject, a seriousness and its own kinds of admiration. But the Bradford family, for example, in the novel, doesn't have that same kind of focus, right? It's all of the things that you just talked about in terms of the inspiration for writing that part of the world of our share of night. Um, And so I'm going to deviate a little bit and ask about the sort of responsibility of the biographer maybe and the freedom of the novelist as being two very different writing modes for you. To explain more or less, like in Argentina, like in America, when the West was one, let's say, for us was the South was one, uh, to, you know, open the, the frontier in the south in Patagonia, there was a lot of people, indigenous people living there, and they were massacred. And everyone, every person that participated in that massacre, this is late 19th century, were awarded with a massive land. Mm-hmm which meant that they built, and these are the same families. These are still, because when you get this Argentina is enormous as as America. So once you get this kind of enormous land and you build your fortune there in a country that their wealth is made of exporting primary products, I mean, meat Mm -hmm. and, you know, agriculture things, you own it, you know, and that money and that ownership was given to you after and as an award for a massacre. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, even if uh, three generations afterwards, their children have nothing to do with that, that's there. Mm-hmm. And I'm very interested in history and memory and, you know, and to kind of try to see where things come from, not 
to blame the press, the you know the 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 the, the contemporary people that come from there because it's not their fault or, or their responsibility, and I don't think they even have to be accountable for it because you know it's where they are. But in the context of a novel that, in a way, is trying also to tell the history of of my country, I can't ignore mm-hmm. how this came. And how this state not only came, how this state, and uh, it's not that far from you know the colonial things that appear there. Kind of, it's kind of the same process. So um, that's not to say that the novel is about that in a very obvious way, but that is there. And mm-hmm. even if you don't know it, you can see that this uh, privilege was made. Um, I don't know if if that kind of money is made in 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 any way that is not like that. I don't think it's possible. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, this actually leads me to uh, a, a question about something you said in an interview with the Guardian that you didn't want to be complicit in any kind of silence. Our Share of Night is a novel that raises the question of what we do with the silent voices of the dead and disappeared, particularly those disappeared during the last dictatorship or the dirty war. Juan and the order's cadre of mediums live at the precipice of life and death, communicating with ghosts and demons. And Juan is desperate to speak with his dead wife, Rosario. It seems to me that real history is the calling forth of ghosts whose anger and sorrow the world needs to hear. Do you see your novel as participating in the both the fantasy and the historical necessity of speaking with the dead? Yeah, and also, um, I mean, myself as um, this is kind of important in in Argentina. The I think the the decision we are a country, let's say, uh, that is absolutely obsessed with memory, with the concept of memory, and um, in a in a very wide way. And uh, add to that that is this is one of the few uh, countries in the in the planet, I guess, with France that still keeps uh, psychoanalysis as uh, something that is uh, an everyday thing. I I mm. don't do it now, but I think, and that's you know obsessively revisiting your memories. It's not just- That's fascinating. Yeah. And even in our everyday language, we have things like that. Like it's like, that's your super ego talking. Like it's very normal. Mm. And so, but that doesn't mean that we know ourselves that much. That means that we have so much information that we are totally confused most of the time. Same happens with the with obsession with memory and history. Uh, the country decided when the dictatorship ended in 76 after the disappeared that basically were vo- there were bodies that were taken from the society and therefore were voices that were listened. And this is a silence that is very special because it's something to have a trial where they can tell what they were trying to do as wrong as they could be. Because some were very young. This is the 70s. This is, you know, this is uh, all kind of organizations that were formed after the Cuban Revolution. And, you know, that those days it seemed reasonable <laughs> or it seemed that it could work. I have a, a friend in Cuba that always says to me, well, you know, in print, even marks make sense. And it's true. Like you read it and it's, it's fucking amazing. Like, and you say, wow. And then you do it and it's kind of, ooh. And <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, those voices are voices that were not heard at, at the moment because they didn't have a trial. They weren't, you know, they didn't have the opportunity to speak and they were taken in the night in a ghostly way. Like it wasn't, this wasn't like your usual authoritarian violent government that kills people in the street and there's bodies everywhere this is kidnaps in the middle of the night and taken to facilities that were in the city and they were hidden in the city so that led to a whole other thing of haunted buildings and and places even 
this one that they just uh, found underneath, not just a couple of years ago, but I mean, one of the latest one that they found underneath the highway. Mm -hmm. So and at the other night I was coming back, back from La Plata where I teach and in the night you go underneath, you know, the, the, the highway and you can see it and there's like the white crosses and the pictures of the people that were there because there was a clandestine place there that was uh, that they destroyed before they left power so all the cities has like things like that and but the the generals were taken to court and in court we could hear the victims the tortures it was like absolutely Crew. I mean, I, I it was my. I always say they were my first horror stories, and they were like you know, um, women giving birth in the back of a car, and then the child taken from them, and then they tortured for hours, and then you know, and then I mean, oh, and and that's nothing that she survived. Mm -hmm. But um, and since then, this is the Middle Ages. We've been discussing this as a society. It never ends. And uh, the, the, the dictators all also took children that were babies or very young children. I could have been taken if my parents were, you know, involved in, they knew what was going on, but they weren't involved in an organization. Could be taken and given to another family, which is basically the Freudian concept of the sinister. Mm -hmm. So everything is kind of very linked in the constant examination of memory and history. And it's quite stressing and uh and but at the same time i don't think i would be comfortable in a society that decided otherwise you know that decided not to talk about violence or to think that violence may go away or to blame the person that did it and not the history and not trying to understand the roots of it well i'm interested actually so the what but also the the how of how you take up violence, specifically in our share of night, but it's these questions and these events come back um, throughout so many of the short stories, for example. And I'm thinking here, you know, you've got this attention to violence. It has to do with specific histories of violence. Of course, the last dictatorship, the dirty war, the disappeared, also the deeper historical roots, um, the Bradford family in our share of night, that history of the, plantation or agricultural system in Misiones and its violence, its links to the British Empire, its links to British activities in West Africa, which come up in the novel as well, but also that kind of, well, so larger forms of structural violence and also interpersonal violence. Um, yeah. Thinking of that mm -hmm. very violent scene of the the, the fight where, where uh, Juan attacks his son, Gaspar. Um, yeah. And so some of that, yes, it's a, that interest in horror and ghost stories, that interest in the immediate history, but I'm interested in how you think about these different registers of violence. Let's stick with our share of night, how you think about them working with each other and how you experience them then in reception, right? So one thing that strikes me about all of the reviews of our share of night in English is the, the violence they go to is the violence of the dictatorship, right? Yeah. And that that's what's sort of focused on in part because of how, you know, a review of the novel is gonna be focusing perhaps on the first part of the novel as a setup. Um, but that's just one of the many registers, which is why I wanted to invite you to talk about how you think about the interplay of those registers. I think the the the, the interpersonal violence it, it can, is, is much worse, mm -hmm. uh, as in how I depict it. No, it's, I don't mean in, in the big picture, but you know, it's um, large violence, historical violence is difficult for us, I think, to grasp in general. Mm -hmm. It's numbers, mm -hmm. 2000 people died, 2700 I remember like uh, art actions like I can't remember Jerry Posinski was the name can't remember but it was a an artist in the 70s that did like uh, silhouettes of um how many people were uh, were dead in a concentration camps in Nazi Germany per day and it was impressive but it was still cardboard uh cuts mm -hmm. you know but I think interpersonal violence in in, in the novel, uh, in the context of, of the novel as making the novel not about the characters, um, not about who they are, because Juan is quite a violent person. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and he's um because he had he received a lot of violence in his body a lot of pain in his own body and um sometimes he he can be a loving person but he's very crazy and he's very violent and sometimes he really enjoys to hurt mm -hmm. other people also because he has to do it ritualistically Mm -hmm. So uh, to him, hurting has to, uh, it's, it's a very mixed thing. And uh, in the case of Gaspar, he, 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 he really, in that confrontation, he basically is trying to make a symbol in his hand to, in his, in his arm, sorry, to protect him. But he never tells him this. Mm -hmm. And he never, I, I don't know, he never says to him, Hey, we have. I have to protect you from something. I have that would be awful too. I, I thought about that, but I needed the, you know, because he's also he, Juan is kind of disappearing at this point. Mm -hmm. He's not also dying, but he's kind of disappearing as a. So he has to really use the last that he has, and the last that he has is violence. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it mirrors the other violence. It kind of gives you like a microscope thing you know, in the intimate and family relationships of the whole mm -hmm. thing. So the whole thing is kind of easy to explain in terms of history says blah. But then when you see a dad that is kind of nice to his child 50% of the time and the other 50% of the time is violent or extremely weird with him, mm -hmm. borderline abusive, not sexually, but I mean, in, in all the other things, and he grabs him and he, you know, destroys his arm. And uh, I think that is kind of the in-your-face effect of the accumulated violence. Uh, and uh, because in the end, historical violence happens one-to-one. -one. Mm -hmm. It's one person that decides to throw a bomb. It's one person that decides to torture the other I mean, in the end, this one person with the other person is one person that decides to pull the trigger and look the other one in the eyes. And that dimension is the only dimension where you can more or less give it like the real feeling of what it is. As much as you can do in, in literature, that you can do that much. Well, but I'm, not, I'm not scared of violence. I mean, of writing violence because there's a lot of the, the real violence. First is what is awful. And second, there's lots of, I mean, it would be like totally silly of my part if I want to write a, a story that has elements of violence to be coy or to be timid about it, you know, mm -hmm. when in, when you have the things that are happening in, in the world, like I, I don't, I, this is the things that I don't understand. There's also many reviews that says that unnecessary violence, excuse me, mm -hmm. like it's not real. The necessary violence is the real violence. This is just, you know, this is just telling you how it feels and how we are so used to it mm -hmm. that we are more, uh, you know, upset about the work of fiction with violence and not with people being killed every day. And it's not, it's like, okay, well, we have this problem, really. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, and I know with a child is, is worse, but many, like most of the children that have violence are is violence in the household as you know as uh, couples mm -hmm. so it's it where the affection should be stronger is where violence is stronger which is you know and that scene so, is terrifying precisely because the, so the scene of the moment where Juan attacks Gaspar is, is narrated from Gaspar's, Gaspar's perspective, right? That's yeah. what makes that scene so affecting, both the actual violence of parent to child, but mm -hmm. his confusion at what's unfolding. And this is something that happens in several, so children are both the recipients, but also agents of violence in a lot of your stories as well. Yeah. Um, and, and they are, that violence is so often seen from the child's perspective and when it's not it's even creepier so i'm thinking of the story the neighbor's courtyard um yeah. from things we lost in the fire um but also something like um well the short story adela's house the parts of yeah. it also come back in our share of night right so it's children in these extreme situations who are somehow 
transformed by it. Also the novela, um, bueno, Los Chicos Que Vuelven, or yes. its title in the English, I think, was a children that, the children that come disappear back. or something. Yeah, something, yeah. That, come back, something like remember. that. Yeah, and, and so, and again, the, the sort of ways in which violence kind of deforms these children as a sort of figure that comes back over and over in the work. Um, yeah. You're not shy about it. No, <laughs> is the way no, I would ask the question. South America in general, and I think uh, you see it in in other places too. In in the south, mm -hmm. it's a place where there's lots of children that are um, submitted to extreme social violence. They live in the streets. They ask for. They beg for money. They live in appalling situations. The the things that they are exposed living in the street we can't even imagine, and um, Many of them not even survive. Many of them, like you know, start doing drugs, and most they don't go to school. And the ones that survive, they don't really can't um, break this circle. Mm -hmm. So, um, in my stories, these children that are you know kind of in this totally unfair situation are mad. <laughs> so, uh, as a trope in in horror. The mean child is all, all, always very scary. I think it's because um, if a child is bad, it's mean, it's evil, because evil is just the world. There's two reasons for him to be evil. One, he was damaged beyond mm -hmm. everything, so he can only react with, with evil. So who was the one that dared to do that to, to, to someone that, you know, couldn't defend himself and the other thing is that he was born evil which is kind of like a demonic situation and it kind of puts upside down all our no notions of purity innocence violence children etc so uh, as a trope it really works but uh, as a force that is a very major force i think in our uh societies there is resentment Mm -hmm. And resentment brews very early, I think. Mm -hmm. And I could, I can see sometimes when I go in in the subway and there's the kid that you know is trying to selling me some, I don't know, socks or something like that. And I say no because I don't have cash or something. And there's hatred in his eyes, and he's six. Mm -hmm. So this is the boy I want to be absolutely cruel and mean to this woman that most of the time is me. That is the mm -hmm. person that is saying no to his socks. And I'm not, it's not my fault, but it doesn't really matter because I'm not taking him to my house, giving him a bath and adopting him either, mm -hmm. you know. So that kind of you know, and you can say to me, well, but you couldn't do that. Yeah, I know. I couldn't do that. <laughs> but, but that's the right thing to do, isn't it? So mm. to be uh, like, you know, in this kind of very morally complex situation where nobody is to blame about anything. So how do we fix it? This is hundreds of thousands of kids. Since it's my genre, what I do with them is make them vengeful, awful, and scary to see, you know, <laughs> how people, people react to something that they should do. Other, another thing is that children don't really have a voice because they can't really speak. I mean, mm -hmm. they can't really put in words what's going on with them. They don't understand it. They can say they have tantrums, they feel bad, they are, you know, so sometimes they have, I mean, there's not, they have not really like a construction of, of a discourse about what's going on with them or, or, or where they put, and they think all this is normal. So, uh, yeah, so I, I turn them into little vengeful creatures, zombies that come back, pieces of little memory, pieces of no future. This is a very punk thing. Yeah, I, I wanted to pick up actually on something that's come up as we've been talking about violence, which is been talking about real historical events, their real sort of effects in the world, but also referring to those tropes of horror, right? The mm -hmm. evil child, the demon child, the, creep, the twins being creepy would be another one that's come up. And I'm yeah. interested in that. Um, 
relationship to genre fiction. So there's horror, there's the gothic in your work. I think there's also, I mean, crime fiction, your first story in English, The Dirty yeah. Kid, which picks up on a lot of things thematically that we've been talking about, was published in a McSweeney's volume of crime fiction from Latin America. And so I'm interested in what genre fiction, and you can interpret that term as you'd like, as broadly or as, as, yeah, yeah. as narrowly, has done for you, I think, first as a reader, and then what it's doing for you as a writer when you engage with the tropes of these genres. Um, but first, for you as a reader, what encountering genre fiction opened up? As a reader, it was very, to be honest, it was very entertaining to me. Like I had like a uh, free uh, access to anything in my in my in my parents' uh, uh, bookshelves. Like no difference between children, nothing. I mean, I I think probably they got some books off, but not many. And um, I remember when I started reading, especially. Bradbury horror stories they were like wow you know like, mm-hmm. like the October country those, those stories were like mm-hmm. and um I remember like ghost Mr James and and the gothic you know like the 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 way that Juan hurts Gaspar's arm that is kind of you know breaking a window and making you know like that with the with the broken glass is exactly the way that Kathy in Wuthering Heights yeah. puts the hand through the window yeah. and then mm-hmm. you know That's grabs perfect. in this case he grabs the 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 guy that I can't remember the name that but the, the guy that is the, the one the guy that is living there for a while in the in, in Heathcliff's house mm-hmm. and um and she said like the ghost girl that does that to him and hurts him like that and it's like I got that as a reference. Mm-hmm. As a you know, uh, it's not obvious in, because the situation is so different. But I always wanted to put the scenes somewhere. Mm-hmm. Those basically were the things that entertained me and gave me a lot of adrenaline. Mm-hmm. And then, as I were older, I was not a reader, but was as an spectator. I you know fell in love with uh, Spielberg when he goes dark, um, as in uh, you know very popular let's say but then I love Cronenberg I love David Lynch I love uh, there's a there's a very dark tradition in that was I don't know why it was called magical realism in literature in uh, in South America that is kind of Jose Donoso in Chile and mm-hmm. Juan Carlos Onetti in Uruguay and uh, Ernesto Sabato in Argentina that are like pessimistic awful, dark, gray, old mansions, most, I mean, wow. And I love that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, I don't think you choose that much. Uh, and even fr- French stuff was here, very big and Bergman and all that, the hour of the wolf and, you know. Mm-hmm. Eyes without a face and those kinds of things. Baudelaire, Rambo. I love the symbolist. I love the decadent poets. When I was teenager and post teenager, mm-hmm. so um, I don't think. And then I became a goth, and you know, goth punk, mm-hmm. and that the kind of area. Mm-hmm. You know, Bowie, Aleister Crowley, magician kind of. You know, so. Uh, so rock and roll to black metal, whatever. And I don't think you really choose that. I think it's kind of a, a part of your personality, part how you grew up, but many people grew up the same way and, and went to, I don't know, rom-coms and don't give me anything dark because it really upsets me. That to me was kind of very different to me. It was like a safe space, was something that entertained me, was something that helped me um, have fun. I you know, run away from, didn't run away, but it was just an afternoon. But I escaped my house to see uh, Nightmare on Elm Street when I was 13 with a couple mm-hmm. of kids. We're in the last row, we were like, Ooh. I still remember when Freddie, like the arms go like really long and he's uh-huh. in the dark alley and he's like, you know, with the with the knives, he's like, <laughs> and I, I don't know, I, I we were like, screaming like insane and having so much fun and then we realized wow this is a story of a pedophile killer that was 
murdered by the parents of the children that he didn't manage to kill to stop him. And then he's coming back for those children in their dreams so he cannot be stopped. Like this is like a massive, massive tale of trauma and intergenerational trauma. And it's, you know, we were just screaming in the back row like in a clandestine <laughs> meeting in the in the cinema. <laughs> so yeah. And at, at that point when I realized that all this was a lot of fun, but it was talking about this kind of stuff. When I realized this dimension of horror, that the first time is not very obvious. And I think that's why horror sometimes is very despised. This I don't know if despised, but minimalized, like you know, just mm-hmm. entertainment. Because it's not that obvious. It's not there is the the gross out level is so in your face that for you to see the other level, you have to be a real reader of it. Mm-hmm. And not everybody is, you know, drawn to it or interested in, you know, digging a bit more into it. But when I did, I said, oh, 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 this is my language. This is the language I can use to talk about certain things. This fits me because it's the way I see the world. This fits me because it's the kind of narrative that I enjoy, basically. And also, it most of the time takes on the subjects that I care about. Vulnerable bodies, traumatic histories, ghosts as, 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 as a representation of traumatic history. Uh, uh, yeah, death, death and desire. Uh, violence mm-hmm. the, the the moral question of going too far that's something that really interests me in, in literature i do go too far but it's not something i don't think about mm-hmm. and uh, and it's something that i really want to want to try as a writer i, I don't want to be a shy writer ab- about that because i think that's what makes literature important otherwise it's just telling you you know a story about your grandma and how nice she was and it's absolutely boring so yeah that that's what 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 made it like at first it was like this moves me this makes me feel something and then it was like this makes me feel something because this is what I want to talk about our share of night is now in every major European language um it's now in English um more of your short stories are being translated into more languages you are clearly a reader and and uh well, I hate this word, but a consumer of culture from many places. And now your work is yeah. circulating into these places. So I'm curious about the experience of it um, for you, especially when um, your work is translated into languages that you yourself are a reader in, in French or in English, for example, and the experience of encountering yourself in that other language and the experience of encountering the audiences attached to that other language. Well, it's, 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 it's quite curious because when in in spanish the you know spain and south america it's enormous Uh, all the countries are different and we have very different histories but somehow there's an understanding there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when we say uh police violence in in latin america we know what we're talking about what kind of police violence it is and even if it's different in Spain they know what's happening here I mean and they also had like Spain in many ways with that long 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 dictatorship of Franco has a lot of things that even if they don't want to admit it a lot of things that are very similar to what happened in Latin America but in English or in French I can read the translation the translation in French to me is nearer what I wrote Mm-hmm. Because French is a uh, language that is more uh, transparent with Spanish. And uh, see, I can speak it very good because, you know, the French don't think everyone can speak it, but I can read it mm-hmm. uh, like almost with no problem. And uh, I love it. But what happens with the audience, for example, in France, France is a country that used to have like a very hundred years ago, I guess, Guy de Maupassant and the seances and Alan Kardec that was massive spiritualist and the symbolist and the symbolist paintings were like a very very mystical kind of Mm -hmm. thing and they were like all the the, you know the legends of Britannia in the north and that after I think the 60s and 50s and existentialism and Sartre and Camus and, and all of that was kind of lost and now 
not only the bigger um, writers like Ulebek or Carrero, Amelie Notom or uh, or Anierno, like, but also like the normal literature is very um, about real stuff. Mm -hmm. It is very auto fiction. Is very you know realistic. So they don't. It's like the tradition is all over the place. So they received this massive book because the book did very good and it was very well received. Like they mm. were, um, they kind of understood that it was not magical realism anymore or the magical mm -hmm. realism got very dark somehow mm -hmm. and how they're very interested in colonial history because that's their obsession with memories that. Mm -hmm. So it was like, how does it work, the colonial history in this novel? Like, it really resonated with them. And I think it resonated with a lot of young people that are, are consuming things in English. And also, mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, they had like a wave of French, they call it French New Extremity, that is kind of French horror movies that are graphic, like, my God, they are graphic. Like mm -hmm. the one that one can a couple of, of, of years uh, ago. Titan. Titan. That is kind of, this mm -hmm. yes <laughs> well there was yeah yes. but there was a wave of that there was more underground than that mm -hmm. and I still to this day I don't understand how that movie won uh, not mm -hmm. because I really like it but I don't understand what I mean this I mean it's totally crazy and mm -hmm. uh, it's hyper violent and it's like a vision of new flesh that is kind of um, maybe it's a bit more frivolous than what Cronenberg thinks about it but visually it's like totally arresting Mm -hmm. So, um, and it tackles in things that that Cronenberg does, and that much that is like the like the gender thing. So it's very, very, and the girl is awful. This is a was amazing to me. The concept of a, a whole flick that was very long with a lead woman as a character that was awful in all her incarnation. She's awful. Like she, you don't ever like her. As a child, she's awful. As a killer, when she grows up, it's awful. When she has sex with the car, it's awful. She's always awful. Anyway, mm -hmm. and uh, that was that was very interesting to me. And there was like a wave of that very underground cinema that people really enjoyed, but it didn't take off because it doesn't have like a massive thing. Mm -hmm. And no, by no means my book was massive, but you can see that there's a craving of that there that is not being given to them with a culture that gives you a lot because in France, you know, mm -hmm. in English it's different because in English there is a tradition of horror. Mm -hmm. So it's read by the very horror people in a way, like those are mostly the ones that want more plot and thinks it is a bit too self kind of congratulatory mm -hmm. to me or too literary and that it is because, you know, I come more from that. And then there's the very, very, I have probably the, the, the smartest readings because there is a tradition. Mm -hmm. So you can see like a reading that Adam Thirwell did or, you know, or I don't know, Ishiguro saying I really like it. And I know where he, um, apart from the from that they can use it as a blurb and everyone mm -hmm. was excited with that. I can see why, because I mean, even if he he could like it or not, that's not the point. But he can see, okay, okay, there is a person here that is doing genre with a lot of literary references and not genre just, you know, in the pop kind of way that I really like. I really enjoy the pop kind of way. But when uh, the people that have a lot of different references, like can, we can kind of see each other. Mm -hmm. I got like a also like a review blur from Alan Moore I was like yes. dead that day I told you I think <laughs> he, he gave me the the book with the I'm your friend Alan Moore and I'm you know telling people that I meet him which is a lie I, <laughs> I've never met him I never talked to him or anything but I mean it's different because there you have an audience that you have very educated people in this kind of things mm -hmm. so it's different but then you go to places where your language is completely not only your language but your history like i went to poland mm -hmm. and um which is a lovely country and krakow is like a city that is absolutely amazing and because uh, you can see also the clash of worlds there is not like pretty pretty europe is something much more real in a way and uh but the, the cultural differences were massive like i was talking about dictatorships and to, to them is stalin 
Mm -hmm. And to us, no. <laughs> they have no idea about your country. They know it's mm -hmm. in South America, but you know, they don't know at all. You have to say it's in the South. We have, you know, tropical things, but also Patagonia and, you know, it, in, it finishes in Antarctica and it's like, whoa, but it's hot or cold. I mean, well, yeah, it depends, <laughs> it depends where you are. And uh, so it's kind of, yeah. And, and it's kind of um, that I like that because it makes me um, first, you know, opening my mind, not just to literature, that easy, mm -hmm. but, you know, to the place where, certain narratives are uh, being produced and what kind of fears they have, what, what what are their demons, like their social demons, what are they, you know, the, the uh, other kinds of things that is not like reading Olga Torkashuk because Olga mm -hmm. Torkashuk is in the system of literature, that is other thing. Mm -hmm. And then I, I, I want to understand where you know, stories are coming from. It's not that like I'm going to understand it being a week in Poland, but you have an idea mm -hmm. because they talk to you. Like I have, the Pope is Argentinian, you know? Mm. And uh, <laughs> I'm in Krakow where John Paul is from. Mm -hmm. And so the, everything is John Paul, like literally everything is John Paul. You walk, you, you know, through a plaza and all the piazza is like a John Paul pictures. And then you go to, I, I mean, he, the man is Brad Pitt. And, and, <laughs> and, and That's <laughs> the first time that uh, comparison has ever been made, Maria. Actually, <laughs> I, I wish it were, but honestly, he does have the reputation of being the hot pope. So, <laughs> I when he was young, you know, I've seen so many yeah. things in Krakow that I can tell you when he was in his 20s and he was a young priest, the man had something. They called him the African <laughs> ball because he was free. And he was, you know, as an old man, he was like a bit Father Christmas kind of roundy. But when he was, but when he was young, you know, because I've seen everything, I know everything about John Paul at this point in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but at one point they gave me like a calendar and the calendar was a John Paul calendar. Uh, so as a joke, because <laughs> I'm not Catholic, I, I, I like the pomp of, you know, of the church, of course. I mean, mm -hmm. and, you know, like the, the dresses that they have and, you know, <laughs> and, and all the, and the paintings and, the, you know, velvet. But it's a velvet gold mine, no? It could be that yeah. So I remember I did a talk. Nobody asked any question. There was a lot of people, but it was a festival. So this is kind of common that a lot of people go. So I didn't thought it was because of me, and it wasn't. But afterwards, when they came to the signing, many, especially girls, women, came to me with the book and said to me, I didn't want to say the question out loud because I'm from a small town and I just moved to Krakow and stuff, but I want to ask you, why do you have so many queer characters? Because, you know, mm. here you mm. can, there's a lot of problems about, you know, um, diversity and uh, and we are being thrown out, but it's a very Catholic country. So they are being thrown out of their cities in the, in the, in the big cities, they are more comfortable, but where they are from, they are not. So, and, and I got a lot of that. And I, and I got a lot about the women and how the women, the women are not that, they are not the, the, the main protagonists in the novel, but they are strong women. So like, uh, you know, we were talking about cemeteries before. To me, mm -hmm. the book about cemeteries has a lot kind of amateur anthropologist there. That's mm -hmm. why Rosario is kind of a, like a real anthropologist because mm -hmm. she kind of picks uh, like uh, folklore stories and stuff. And, they were very interested in that, in how a woman, especially in the 60s, and she kind of has, a, a, because they, they now they can, but they're before their mothers were like, most of the time were um, all working in a factory or working at home. It's not, we're not that common in that generation. So that's how I understood how it came from, for them from a totally different place. It wasn't the dictatorship, mm. the politics. No, 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 no. It, it was the the youth, the streets, mm. the freedom of this youth, the way they're talking about their sexuality, the free they are with their sexuality. How nobody in the book really is defi defines this define themselves as anybody. They just are attracted to each other and have sex, which is kind of normal. 
-hmm. in the era that this is going on because in the you know in the 70s nobody was saying i'm this and that i'm not identity politics were not a thing it's a question that people ask me with the things that that they, that they are thinking now but that's how i understood the whole oh, oh, this is what it is mm -hmm. this is why they some of these girls are grabbing the book as a talisman kind of thing can you sign mm. it to me because mm -hmm. you know uh because they are by a person that is more or less their age older but not that much they kind of are represented there and they're not finding that in their literature because you know so yeah that's what translation is to me mm -hmm. and that's how i felt about translation we close uh, each episode of this season with a signature question. Yeah. And uh, this season, we're asking what other than your actual writing supplies or devices do you need to sit down and write? What makes the act of writing actually happen for you? Nowadays, it's music. I have to, you know, I have to, I can't, this is not film, but, you know, I have like three pairs of headphones it depends on what you know mm -hmm. so yeah I do. yeah there's another one here and it's kind of destroyed you see yeah <laughs> it works and um and I, I need to write with music now i could just put music because i'm alone but um when my husband is here i like to put the the thing so i don't hear whatever he's doing and to me, writing begins when I find the, the music to put me in the mood. A writer at some point, there's a lot of work, of course, but some points you need that state where you feel that someone is dictating something. Mm. And I've seen it in other writers that they're so fast, so fast writing that is like, how? Like there's no, where's the, you know, because it's not like they're copying something or they're listening to something. They are inventing something and it comes so fast and how, and I do it myself. It's a very mysterious thing and you have to reach it somehow. And I reach it only with music. Mm -hmm. I'll close us today with the reminder that you can purchase both of our guest books online from independent bookstores and there'll be links to buy them from bookshop.org at our website noveldialogue.org. Our thanks, as always, to the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship and to Public Books for their continued partnership. We are thankful for Hannah Jorgensen, who is our graduate intern, Rebecca Otto, our social media manager, and Connor Hibbard, the sound engineer. I'd encourage you to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Some novelists from past seasons of Novel Dialogue include Chang-Rae Lee, Teju Cole, Orham Palmek, Jennifer Egan, George Saunders, and many more conversations just like this one. My special thanks to Mariana for returning to, for yet another wonderful conversation that will this time have a lasting form, but I still think of the other one as well as pairing with this one, and to Magali for her wonderful questions. So thank you both for this conversation. Mm -hmm.